Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke in Moscow's Red Square during a Victory Day celebration today. He told troops they're fighting in Ukraine so nobody forgets the lessons of World War II. Coming up, Putin's version of that war and the current war he's waging in Ukraine. Today is Monday, May 9th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Biden administration is rolling out its new push to lower internet costs, but it's hard to promote a program to people who don't have the internet. A growing number of far-right extremists in America have been converting to Orthodox Christianity. And if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, many of the states likely to ban abortion happen to have a relatively high percent of residents of color. We also know that about 60% of people obtaining abortions are people of color. Coming up, abortion access is an issue of racial justice. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. stocks end another day sharply lower, with the Dow losing 653 points, nearly 2 percent, ending at 32,245. The Nasdaq closes down more than 4 percent, or 521 points, and the S&P was down more than 3 percent, or 131 points. High-speed Internet service at home for free. That could soon become a reality for nearly 50 million low-income households under President Biden's infrastructure package Congress approved last year. My top priority is fighting inflation and lowering prices for families and the things they need. Today's announcement is going to give millions of families a little more, a little more breathing room. 20 Internet companies have agreed to slash costs to about $30 a month, but with a discount in government subsidies, tens of millions of people may find their Internet service bill is covered. Senate Democrats start the process tonight to set up a Wednesday vote on legislation to enshrine the right to obtain an abortion into federal law. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports on the effort that's expected to fall short. Minnesota Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar says if the leaked opinion from the Supreme Court holds, it would roll back 50 years of precedent. Speaking Sunday on ABC, she said the Senate needs to act. It's who should make this decision. Should it be a woman and her doctor or a politician? Should it be Ted Cruz making this decision or a woman and her family? Democrats don't have the votes to approve the bill, which failed already earlier this year. Klobuchar says her party will take the issue to the ballot box. On Saturday, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell told USA Today it's, quote, possible a nationwide ban on abortion could pass if the high court overturns current law and Republicans retake control of Congress this fall. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. In war-ravaged suburbs of the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, residents are returning and businesses are slowly reopening. NPR's Jason Bobian reports on the anxiety-filled recovery in Bucha. Yatsig Oleg runs a small bazaar in Bucha, with stalls selling everything from pizza to lingerie to plumbing supplies. On March 3rd, as Russians were advancing on Bucha, two shells slammed into the complex. All the business owners left, Oleg says, and we didn't know if they will come back or not. One section of the market is still a charred mess of twisted sheet metal and burned merchandise. Alongside the destruction, however, other shops are now reopening. Oleg says everyone is still hesitant. Residents fear that fighting might resume. Business owners are afraid that they may lose any new investments. But slowly, he says, the market is coming back to life. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Bucha, Ukraine. 
The Dow closes down 653 points. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Gas prices in Massachusetts are at an all-time high. They've risen 18 cents in one week. WBUR's Matt Ledden reports on what's causing the spike. The average price of regular unleaded in Massachusetts is $4.39 a gallon. The price of crude oil, which accounts for more than half the cost of gas, is also up. AAA Northeast spokeswoman Mary McGuire says another reason for the increase, we're driving more. We're seeing strong demand here in Massachusetts, and we live in a densely populated area. So that demand for gasoline, coupled with higher crude oil prices, is definitely boosting prices at the pump. Diesel prices also reached a record high for the state today at $6.27 a gallon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Matt Ludden. Drivers can expect heavy residual delays on Interstate 93 in Randolph this afternoon. The state's Department of Transportation just finished cleaning up a gravel spill on 93 South at Route 24. That was in the last half hour they cleaned it up. It was the result of a dump truck crash that caused one lane to be closed for most of the afternoon. Right now, traffic is improving a bit. It's a 40-minute ride on 93 South from downtown Boston to Route 24 in Randolph. At least two school districts in Massachusetts are recommending that students and staff wear masks indoors amid rising COVID cases. The recommendation went into effect today at Arlington and Cambridge Public Schools. District spokespeople pointed to increases in school cases and COVID-related hospitalizations in the community. And there's a new interim leader for the state agency that regulates the use of marijuana. Today, Massachusetts Treasurer Deb Goldberg named Sarah Kim as interim chair of the Cannabis Control Commission. Kim's currently a deputy treasurer and general counsel in the treasurer's office. She's taking over for former chair Steve Hoffman, who resigned last month without explanation after nearly five years on the job. In the forecast... Pretty lovely out there right now. Should also have a clear, nice night tonight, down around the low 40s. Tomorrow, bright sunshine may even reach 60 degrees. Pretty much the same thing on Wednesday. Sunny, right about 60. 54 degrees now in Boston at 406. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match, limited by state law. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Today in Russia, a celebration 77 years old. At 10 a.m., the gigantic parade starts. A masked Red Army band is first in line as Soviet Russia hails the dawn of victory. In May of 1945, Russians celebrated the defeat of Nazi Germany, something they still do each year on May 9th, Victory Day. That is sound from today. It's a military band in Moscow's Red Square where tanks and thousands of soldiers paraded. With Russia now occupying a very different position on the world stage than it did at the end of World War II. In the third month of Russia's attack on Ukraine, international observers braced for what Russian President Vladimir Putin might say in his big speech. There was speculation Putin might use the day to celebrate victory in Ukraine or signal Russian plans to mobilize for a larger conflict. In the end, Putin didn't do either. Though he acknowledged Russian deaths in Ukraine, there were no claims of victory and no signal of widening action. Instead, Putin, addressing Russian soldiers, committed to stay the course in Ukraine and tied Russian action there to its fight against 
fascism 77 years ago. Вы сражаетесь за родину, за ее будущее, за то, чтобы никто не забыл уроков Второй мировой. You are fighting for our motherland, he said, its future so that nobody forgets the lessons of World War II. He added there is no place in today's world for Nazis. Putin has used false claims of Nazism in Ukraine to justify Russian attacks. And while today's Victory Day celebration was smaller than in recent years, it's a holiday that's grown under Putin, who has used it to rally nationalist sentiment. Which brings us to a story about a surprising place where Russian nationalist sentiment is growing, right here in the U.S. We're talking about Russian Orthodox parishes sprouting up in the South and Upper Midwest, in places with few direct links to Russia. These tiny congregations are mostly made up of American evangelicals and Catholics who've converted. But among them is a growing network of white nationalists, some of whom closely identify with Vladimir Putin. NPR's Odette Youssef has the story. In the fall of 2017, anthropologist Sarah Riccardi Swartz moved to a tiny Appalachian town in West Virginia. She was there to study a religious community known as the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, or ROCOR for short. And what she really wanted to understand was why this lesser-known faith tradition was appealing to American Christians who had absolutely no links to Russia. It's typically an immigrant faith, so I was really interested in that experience and why it spoke to converts. Riccardi Swartz is a postdoctoral fellow at Arizona State University. Her book, based on her research, came out last month. What she found was a community of white American Christians who were disillusioned with change in the U.S. and who longed for the social and gender boundaries of the past. They are anti-abortion, they're uh, pro-heteronormative families, they're anti-trans. There's very distinct gender roles in the church and in the domestic sphere. Riccardi Swartz said these converts believed that in Rocor, they had found a church that has remained the same regardless of place or politics, where tradition and hierarchy rule. But she also found that some of these converts weren't only searching for religious purity. I really didn't see the racism up close until I talked to a man named Dean. Dean is a pseudonym. Riccardi Swartz doesn't use real names in her published work in accordance with the ethics of her field. And he said, I'm so angry. And I said, well, why are you angry? And he said, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a white guy. I've been pushed to the margins in this diverse society. And he said, my whole neighborhood is changing. There's all of these gays and, and there's all of these different people. And you can't even get a job now as a white guy because you're, you're, like, you're oppressed. Views like these aren't unheard of. But Riccardi Swartz was surprised by what Dean said next. He also talked about how much he supported Vladimir Putin and Russia. And then he, like, stopped and he sort of smiled. And he said, do you know what I have upstairs? And I said, no, what do you have upstairs? I've never been to your house before. And he said, I have a, a gun safe and I have lots of guns. And I, I know that there's a war coming. And I want to be on the right side of that war. And I said who is the war with? Who's the right side? And he said, Russia's the right side. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us! When neo-Nazis and white nationalists rallied in Charlottesville almost five years ago, the language they used was new to many Americans. 
Since then, talk of a so-called great replacement and, quote, forced multiculturalism has bled into more mainstream rhetoric on the right. Some Orthodox converts were among those stoking those fears from the beginning. Perhaps the most notorious was Matthew Heimbach. He had established the neo-Nazi traditionalist Worker Party, which helped organize the rally in Charlottesville. Years before that deadly rally, he had been excommunicated from a non-Russian Orthodox church after clergy became aware of his, quote, nationalist segregationist views. But Orthodoxy is decentralized. There are nearly two dozen branches, including Greek, Russian, Coptic, Antiochian, and more. When Heimbach was booted from one, he joined another. Those who track the rise of extremism in Orthodoxy say it's particularly acute in Rokor, the Russian church, but other branches of the church haven't been immune. Inga Leonova is founder of The Wheel, a journal on Orthodoxy and culture. She says as soon as she started writing about this, the floodgates opened. There are people who are studying this stuff, and so they've been coming out of the woodwork and supplying me with a lot of information. Those who study the influx of extremists to Orthodoxy say in terms of numbers, it's small. Orthodox Christians are less than half a percent of the U.S. population, and within Orthodoxy, these elements are considered fringe. But they also warn that it would be dangerous to ignore. They note that these few extremists are networking with outside groups and producing online media that evangelize hate in the name of Orthodoxy. Their podcasts and internet shows revolve around anti-Semitism, contempt for women's and LGBTQ rights, xenophobia, and full-throated support of white nationalists, including some who've been convicted of violent hate crimes. More recently, some have used their channels to amplify pro-Putin propaganda. Here's the deal also, you know, Russia is uh, a Christian nationalist nation. They're actually Orthodox Christian and Russian Orthodox. So The know, day before Russia invaded Ukraine, a clip from a far-right talk show on the web made the rounds on social media. It featured a woman named Lauren Witzke, who was the 2020 GOP candidate for Senate from Delaware. Witzke is also in the process of converting to Russian Orthodoxy. I identify more with Russian, uh, with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden. Witzke declined to speak with NPR for this story. A loyal MAGA supporter, she aligns with the white nationalist America First movement and ran on an anti-immigration platform. At one point, she seemed to support QAnon conspiracies, but has since renounced it. Aram Sarkissian says this pro-Putin stance is common among far-right converts to orthodoxy. They see in him an orthodox leader who stands for their perspectives on these culture wars issues, who speaks in the same blustery language that they look for in a strong leader. Sarkisian is a postdoctoral fellow who studies the history of Eastern Orthodox Christians in the U.S. at Northwestern University. He says Kremlin propaganda has styled Putin as a pious defender of orthodoxy and traditional values. This has appealed to Christian fundamentalists in the U.S. Putin has also positioned himself as a foil to pluralist democracies of the West. That has appealed to America's white nationalists. Now with the war, Putin has received religious cover from the head of the church. The patriarch in Moscow claimed the invasion of Ukraine is necessary to protect Orthodox Ukrainians from Western influence, namely gay pride parades. In the U.S., some lifelong Rokor adherents have left their churches because of this. You know, somebody just said we should stand and pray for both sides. Well, were the Brits supposed to pray for Hitler and Churchill at the same time? Liana Zazulin grew up in a Rokor community in Long Island. 
She's bewildered by the admiration these new converts hold for Putin and by the draw that her beloved church holds for white nationalists. But Zazulin says she's seen a growing tolerance for racism in the church. Suddenly you would like turn around and go, I don't recognize this. Four decades ago, when she married her African-American husband, they were welcomed. But as the church expanded into new areas of the U.S., their kids experienced racism. Those shifting attitudes may have signaled to white nationalists that this church would be a place where they would be tolerated. Inga Leonova uses the word infiltration when she talks about this. And she feels bishops across orthodoxy are intentionally looking the other way. She says it's frustrating, but still, she chooses to remain orthodox. It's a treasure that I cherish that has formed me, that has formed paradoxically, maybe for some uh, people, my views on the value of each human person. Whether black, white, Asian, female, gay, or transgender, Leonova says this is what she understands orthodoxy to be. Odette Youssef, NPR News. Next, consider this podcast. As we wait to see if a huge legal shift is coming for abortion access, studies show that the economic and social shift could look like. More on who could be hit hardest if Roe versus Wade is overturned. Listen to NPR's news podcast, Consider This, where we go a little deeper on a story or two in the news to help you make sense of the day. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the former Honduran president is being arraigned in New York, accused of working with drug cartels to send cocaine into the United States. I'm Lisa Mullins on Wall Street today. The week started up, way down. The Dow dropped 2 percent, 654 points to end the session at 32,246. S&P and Nasdaq lost even more ground. The S&P fell 3 and 2 tenths percent to finish at 39.91. Nasdaq surrendered 4 and 3 tenths of a percent to finally settle at 11,623. More business is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA with A Place for Me, celebrating a new generation of artists creating vibrant figurative paintings, ICABoston.org. The Bedford-based company behind the Roomba vacuum is getting an exemption from tariffs. The federal government has announced that iRobot will not have to pay the 25% surcharge on imported Roomba products from China for the remainder of the year. It is the second time it received an exemption since the Trump administration imposed the tariffs in 2018 to combat China's theft of intellectual property and technology. The forecast is coming up next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus special tours and programs, now through Sunday at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. More at nativeplanttrust.org. And Direct Tire and Auto Service, a dealer alternative. Your local mechanic and tire dealer, serving Newton, Watertown, and the surrounding communities. DirectTire.com. 
Clear tonight on the chilly side, about 42 for tomorrow's sunshine, a bit milder, up around 60 for a high, 54 degrees now in Boston. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. from this station. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. And from your part-time controller, your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. Last month, the former president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, was loaded onto a plane owned by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency and extradited to the United States. Tomorrow, Hernandez will be arraigned in a New York courtroom on charges that for two decades, including during his time as president, he worked with drug cartels to help send hundreds of tons of cocaine into the United States. Sarah Kanosian is a reporter for Reuters and has been following this story. Uh, Welcome. Hi there. Thank you. When he announced uh, the charges last month, Attorney General Merrick Garland accused Hernandez of running Honduras, in Garland's words, as a narco-state What did he mean by that? What are the sorts of things that he's accused of having done? The list is long, and some details came out uh, during the trial of his brother, Tony, who was also convicted on narco-trafficking charges. It ranges from accepting money from drug traffickers to finance his political campaigns to protecting drug shipments, protecting specific drug traffickers um, to help facilitate the movement of cocaine up towards the United States. Uh, I understand he's accused of using the military to help get those drugs into the U.S. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Sort of uh, when you read the indictment, it mentions using military officers to help protect drug traffickers, leaking information to drug traffickers about anti-narcotics operations, oftentimes anti-narcotics operations done in conjunction with the United States. Because Juan Orlando was a key ally to the United States in anti-drug efforts. So sometimes, though, that information would get leaked to drug traffickers who were favored by the military or in different part of the government um, to help facilitate the movement of drugs. And is he accused of having personally profited from the proceeds of these drug shipments? Yeah, and primarily a lot of that money went into his political campaigns. I think most audience members are familiar with El Chapo from Mexico Sinaloa cartel. And he, this came out during the trial of Juan Orlando's brother, Tony, was accused of giving a million dollars that went into one of Juan Orlando's campaigns. Uh, Well, uh, Hernandez will be in a New York courtroom tomorrow, as we mentioned. How is he expected to plead to these charges against him? All signs point that he's going to plead not guilty. He himself has long denied the drug charges, but the fact that he was such a prominent U.S. ally in Central America um, in anti-narcotic efforts is a key part of his defense team's argument. 
because during his time, uh, Honduras extradited several narco traffickers to the United States, um, some of who have come out saying that they bribed Juan Orlando or in some way had dealings with him. And his defense team says, well, they're taking the word from these narco traffickers, but at the same time, he cooperated so much with the United States. It is somewhat surprising, though, right? Because, I mean, just a few years ago, Hernandez seemed to enjoy a pretty good relationship with the U.S., especially on issues of immigration and security. President Donald Trump even shook his hand at the U.N. in 2019. So so what happened? How did the relationship take such a turn? I mean, that is a question why Juan Orlando was able to hold such good relationships with various administrations, Trump, but also under Democratic administrations like Obama. There were good relationships on on the one side, but this investigation was going on on the other. I think in some cases, one hand didn't know what the other one was doing. And then on the other, the United States government felt like they needed a partner and he was willing to step up and do some things that various U.S. governments wanted. So in playing nice, he sort of bought himself time. But at the same time, there were these ongoing investigations. Uh, well, Honduras's new president, uh, Xiomara Castro, she fully cooperated with her predecessor's extradition, it seems. Uh, what is this signal about the U.S.-Honduras relationship now, you think? I think it's at a tense moment, but I think that there is a lot of hope. In speaking with a couple members of her administration, there is does seem to be a willingness to want to cooperate with the United States and try and run a government that is less corrupt than the previous one. Sarah Kanozian is a reporter for Reuters. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The series My Unsung Hero from the team at Hidden Brain tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Julie Ort. When Julie started college, she was recovering from a major spinal cord injury. The leg brace and crutches that she used to walk often made her late to class. And on one of these occasions, she got to her physics class and was trying to maneuver into a seat without drawing attention to herself. But as I was scooting sideways between the first and second rows, my backpack shifted and I began to free fall backwards. Meanwhile, my legs shot straight up in the air so that the entire class was framed between my knees as they, in unison, gasped, some of them reaching their hands out as if they might be able to catch me, all of them with a look of absolute horror. The instructor actually had to come over and help lift my legs over the back of the seat and swing me around to the front. And all the while, I just looked at him and begged, please, just go on teaching. The rest of the day was a blur. I couldn't look anyone in the eye. I just kept thinking that for the next four years, I would meet people and never know if they might have been in that class. So that night, I decided to hide in the library. I found one of those study carols where you have two desks that are facing each other, but there's this high wooden partition in between them. And I just kept my head down, reliving those god-awful 50 minutes of class where I sat there with a wall of pity to my back. But at some point, I looked up to see a hand 
slide two warm chocolate chip cookies across the desk toward me. So I leaned to my far right to see if maybe there was someone on the other side of the partition. And there was, was another student. And he leaned out to meet my gaze and just shrugged and said, I was in physics class today. That was it. And then I ate those warm chocolate chip cookies. It made me realize that even in those moments of being brought incredibly low, there are people who just want you to take that next step forward. To my unsung hero, I don't remember your face. I didn't think to ask your name, but I have never forgotten your kindness. That was Julie Ort of Highlands Ranch, Colorado. She has fully recovered from her injury and is now an avid biker and cross-country skier. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. The Steamship Authority is urging people planning to travel between Cape Cod and the islands to check on the website for the status of ferries today. It says gusty winds have forced some cancellations and delays of trips today. It expects the same conditions tomorrow. About 10% of trips this afternoon and evening have been canceled. There is a gusty wind out there. Beautiful day today. Clear skies should last through the night tonight. Chilly down around 42 degrees. Tomorrow should see sunshine again. Breezy, a bit milder, up around 60 degrees for a high. Same for midweek. Wednesday should be sunny and again around 60. Could hit the low to upper 70s later in the week. 54 degrees now. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best, networking local fishermen. Fish, sushi, and shellfish from the Boston Fish Pier, delivered to your home or for local pickup. More at redsbest.com. And Dedham Community Theater, celebrating independent film, now showing The Duke and Petite Maman, and reopened every day. Visit dedhamcommunitytheater.com. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Anglin Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is, it can be turned into morning edition, wait, wait, or snap judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. At today's military parade on Red Square, marking the Soviet Union's World War II victory over the Nazis, Russian President Vladimir Putin slammed the West, but he gave no signal of a shift in strategy or any indication that he was going to declare a broad mobilization, as some in Ukraine and the West have feared. NPR's Charles Maines has more. There was a lot he didn't say, and and believe it or not, it begins with the word Ukraine. He also didn't mention directly a special military operation That's the kind of the code word that the Kremlin insists uh, the mission be called under criminal penalties. Uh, The Russian leader also, he defied expectations he might mobilize society or widen the conflict, perhaps even formally declaring war or claiming a partial victory of some sort. You know, none of that happened. And there were really no clues as to how or when any victory might be achieved. 
NPR's Charles Maines. Republican-led states are restricting abortion access or access to abortion pills ahead of an expected reversal of Roe v. Wade. Blake Farmer of member station WPLN reports. Some Republican-led state legislatures have been tightening rules on abortion medication this year because they expect out-of-state doctors could try to prescribe the pills through telehealth visits. Like many conservative states, Tennessee already banned telehealth abortions, but the new law makes the violation a felony with possible prison time and up to a $50,000 fine. At a recent rally, Planned Parenthood organizer Julie Edwards said underground assistance may be required in the near future. It's going to take all of us to keep each other's secrets, to hold each other's hands, to keep each other safe. Edwards says it's not that different from Edwards' own abortion at 17. The medication came from a friend's older sister. For NPR News, I'm Blake Farmer in Nashville. Wall Street much lower by the closing bell. The Dow down nearly 2%. The Nasdaq down 4.2%. The S&P 500 down 3.2%. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is reviewing how the city is providing social services around the intersection of Mass Ave and Melnia Cass Boulevard. Mayor Wu says the city's engagement center in that part of the South End is now operating on a limited basis as her office looks to decentralize the social service is offered there. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston the number of people gathering in the area prompted her decision to restrict operations at the center, which helps connect people with housing and services for addiction and mental health. We continue to see with the warming weather, large crowds gathering, and that has been difficult for public safety. The center opened in December, just before the city removed the remaining tents from a large homeless tent encampment. Wu says more than 180 people have been placed in low-threshold housing since the encampment was dismantled. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Drivers in Massachusetts are paying the highest prices ever recorded in the state for gasoline and diesel. AAA reports the statewide average prices hit an all-time record today. For regular unleaded, the average cost is now $4.39 a gallon. That's up 18 cents in the past week. For diesel, it's $6.27 a gallon. That jumped 37 cents in one week. Governor Charlie Baker says the legislature should act now to pass a $3.5 billion economic development bill he proposed. Money would go to infrastructure projects in every city and town in the state with the goal of revitalizing downtowns. The governor says too many communities have yet to recover economically from the pandemic. If we don't get these dollars into the hands of cities and towns across the state now so that they can begin the process associated with planning, designing, and reimagining and jumpstarting their local economies and their downtowns, we'll continue to see empty storefronts and quiet main streets for years to come. Baker says another reason to act now is the federal COVID relief dollars that would help pay for the projects must be spent by 2026. UMass Lowell will have a new chancellor this summertime. Today, school leaders selected Julie Chen to lead the school. She's currently a vice chancellor at the university and has worked there for 25 years. She beat out two external candidates. Chen will replace Chancellor Jackie Maloney, who is retiring. In the forecast, such a lovely day out there. Clear, chilly tonight, down around 40, 42 degrees. For tomorrow, sunshine's back should reach about 60 for a high. And then Wednesday, sunny again, right around 60 again, but could rise to the 70s through the rest of the week. 54 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, the fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from C3AI, C3AI software enables organizations to use artificial intelligence at enterprise scale, solving previously unsolvable problems. C3AI is enterprise AI. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. If you don't have access to the internet, it can obviously make a lot of things really challenging, like doing homework or having a virtual appointment with your doctor or staying in touch with your family. Well, today, President Biden says his administration is trying to make sure everyone can afford the internet. And that's why the bipartisan infrastructure law included $65 billion to make sure we expand access to broadband internet in every region of the country, urban, suburban, and rural, everywhere. Biden was joined in the Rose Garden by a slew of internet providers who have agreed to cut their prices for low-income people. Well, we're joined now by Chris Lewis. He works with the advocacy group Public Knowledge, which has been pushing for greater access to affordable internet. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Ashley. Well, thanks for being with us. So the president says that there are now a bunch of companies on board to lower internet costs. What's your general reaction to the news today? Like, how significant is this development? This is an important, uh, but we should note small step towards closing the digital divide. As the president noted, the $65 billion that was invested takes some some great strides towards deploying broadband to areas that don't have it. But the announcement today was focused on the affordability problem. The cost of broadband is one of the leading causes for why many people who have access don't sign up. Uh, This voluntary uh, pledge today from broadband providers uh, is a good first start. Uh, to make sure that there is a low-cost option. So uh, there will be relief for some here, uh, but we still have a long way to go to make sure that broadband is affordable. And, and the president, I think, noted that uh, in at the end of his speech. I understand the administration already started a program that offers low-income families a $30 per month subsidy right. to help pay for internet service. And something like 11.5 million people are using that stipend now, but another 30 million I gather, are eligible. So why is there such a gap there between the amount of people who are eligible for this subsidy and the amount of people who are actually availing themselves of it? Right. This program uh, that you're talking about with the $30 subsidy uh, has only been around for about a year or so. Uh, We have a a ways to go to uh, grow the outreach so that folks understand that that option is available. Is that the main problem, that the word just hasn't spread about the availability of this stipend? Exactly. And that's why these partnerships with nonprofit organizations and other local groups are so important. Uh, I think of groups like uh, the National Digital Inclusion Alliance, which has chapters in every state, doing work at libraries and community centers, reaching people on the ground. They may have chapters who can help people get connected and sign up for these low-cost programs with broadband providers. So it's going to take a a real public-private effort. How affordable is this new program really? Like if you factor in the required fees that come with signing up for internet access, does this program really lower the costs in a meaningful way? Let's hope so for the folks who qualify. You know, uh, the reports today from the White House were that the commitment, and again, it was a voluntary commitment by a number of broadband providers, was that it would be a $30 
broadband implant all in is how we heard it put. And that's that's great. Now, there are folks who do not qualify for this. Um, and so they'll still be paying the three and four times the cost that we see for high-speed broadband uh, in the general marketplace. And so that's why I think we have a ways to go to actually study and see uh, why broadband is so expensive for everyone. Um, and also uh, what the impact is of having so few choices in the broadband marketplace. All right, that is Chris Lewis. He is the president of the advocacy group Public Knowledge. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Elsa. And to find out if you might qualify for this $30 a month program, head over to getinternet.gov or call 877-384-2575. As people across the country prepare for the end of Roe versus Wade, reproductive justice activists and experts say abortion access is a racial justice issue. NPR's Sandia Dirks reports. Michelle Colon calls herself an abortion freedom fighter. She's the founder of Shiro, which fights for abortion access in Mississippi. We are here for all women and girls, all people, but our specific target, and we're unapologetic about that, is black and brown. Colon says communities of color have already been disproportionately impacted by abortion restrictions. And when Roe is overturned, they'll continue to bear the brunt. There's a lot of reasons for that, starting with geography. The states that are most likely to ban abortion have much higher, much greater proportions of people of color. That's Ushma Apadiai, a public health social scientist at the University of California, San Francisco. We also know that about 60 percent of people obtaining abortions are people of color. Just take a closer look at Mississippi, where Michelle Colon lives. People of color make up 44% of the state. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, they receive 81% of the state's abortions. When Roe is overturned, it will likely shutter Mississippi's last abortion clinic. But it won't stop Colon. The reality of it is, is that we're gonna have to get people from Mississippi outside of the state, across the country. But traveling isn't always easy. Having a car, money, the ability to take time off of work, all things that a lot of lower-income folks of all races don't have access to. And research has shown being denied access to an abortion only makes things worse. UCSF's Ushma Apadiai points to the Turnaway study, which followed women who couldn't get an abortion over 10 years. They were living at higher rates of poverty five years later. It it has economic health outcomes and social outcomes for years to come when people are denied their wanted abortions. For black and brown women, just giving birth puts them at increased risk. Class doesn't matter here. All black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. The root cause is racism. When Black women are experiencing complications of pregnancy, they're not listened to, they're not believed. They are believed to have higher pain thresholds. And then there's what will happen when abortion becomes criminalized. Here's Melissa Murray, a professor of law at New York University. Ectopic pregnancies, miscarriages, like all of these are going to be questioned, I think, in in a world in which abortion is either unlawful or entirely criminal. Women are already being prosecuted and charged after miscarriages and stillbirths. Those women are often poor and disproportionately women of color. Who's going to be singled out for that kind of treatment, for that kind of surveillance? 
it's likely going to be the people who are already adjunct to the criminal justice system. In Justice Samuel Alito's leaked draft opinion, he wrote that abortion is not deeply rooted in this nation's history. Murray says that's not right. Abortion wasn't illegal until after the Civil War, and the reason it was criminalized? Murray's talking about the past here, but she could be describing the present. The immigrant birth weight is swelling and the white birth weight is shrinking, and they are deeply, deeply worried that America is no longer going to look like America. So shades of Tucker Carlson. Murray says what is deeply rooted in American history is racism, but just as deeply rooted is resistance. I'm Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. West Virginia voters head to the polls tomorrow. Because of redistricting, the state has lost a congressional seat. And so two Republican incumbents will square off in a primary. As NPR's Dave Mistich reports, the race is being framed around the candidate's allegiance to former President Trump. Congressman David McKinley is meeting with local officials in Parkersburg, West Virginia. He's here to talk infrastructure and more specifically broadband. What can we do from Congress to make it because we can see we got great plans, but if we don't have people to carry it out, it's not going to happen. Last year, McKinley was one of only 13 House Republicans to support the infrastructure package. When I ask about that vote, McKinley pulls out a report card from the American Society of Civil Engineers noting West Virginia's low marks for roads, water systems, broadband, and other aspects of infrastructure. If your son or daughter came home from school with a report grade of D's and F's, would you want to do something? Though the law will bring more than $4 billion in funding to West Virginia, it's put McKinley, an engineer himself, on the defensive this election cycle. This wasn't a vote for Biden. It wasn't a vote for Pelosi or anyone else. This was a vote for West Virginia. McKinley has also played up his ties to Trump, mentioning his voting record with the former president and featuring Trump in campaign ads. But his opponent, Representative Alex Mooney, a Maryland native who first won in West Virginia in 2014, has one thing that McKinley doesn't. President Trump endorsed me in my race because he wants someone who's going to stand up and actually fight for the values of our country, not go along to get along with the Democrats, as frankly, uh, too many rhino Republicans do. That's Mooney speaking at a Trump rally last week in Pennsylvania. During a short speech, Mooney took aim at McKinley for the infrastructure vote and for supporting an independent commission tasked with investigating the January 6th riot. Though that specific effort failed, it's still been fodder for Mooney in this primary. My opponent is a total rhino. He voted for the January 6th commission to investigate Donald Trump and his allies. Trump's endorsement of Mooney has given him an obvious boost in a state dominated by the former president. But Republican Governor Jim Justice, a longtime ally of Trump, and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin have both endorsed McKinley. And there are those, like 36-year-old middle school teacher Andrew Ashley of Parkersburg, who have backed away from many Republican candidates since Trump took hold. Ashley says this GOP race was an easy decision. It was pretty much either going to be Mooney or... McKinley, so I voted against Mooney by voting for McKinley. He also says McKinley's vote for the infrastructure package went a long way for him. I think he was one of those things where he goes, even though this is a Democrat bill, this is still something that would be very helpful for the state of West Virginia. GOP insiders across the district, like Wood County Executive Committee Chair and Trump backer Rob Cornelius, admit West Virginia does need funding for infrastructure. 
But the optics on that vote, Cornelius says, make it difficult for McKinley. Voters change. The calculus of getting elected changes. And what people want now is, frankly, a lot louder, a lot more shrill than it was in 2010 or 2012, period. It's a different time. Cornelius says races like this one aren't about policy or governing. And the past two presidential elections show Trump's rhetorical style appeals to many voters here. Whether that's enough to sway this primary remains to be seen. But given the GOP's recent dominance in West Virginia, whoever wins tomorrow is likely headed back to Washington for another term. Dave Mistich, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, former Defense Secretary Mark Esper says President Donald Trump inquired about the option to shoot protesters during the unrest after George Floyd's murder in 2020. Mark Esper is coming up next. This Thursday, May 12th at 7 o'clock, WBUR's arts and culture team hosts the Sound On concert series at City Space with a performance from indie jazz band Really From. Get tickets at wbur.org slash events. In the forecast, sunshine closing out the afternoon today. A clear, breezy night tonight falling to the low 40s. Tomorrow is looking good again. Bright sunshine could reach 60 degrees. And then for Wednesday, sunny, breezy, again right about 60. 54 degrees now in Boston at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Love Spring event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. And Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. Americans really eat a weird set of foods. And some of those foods contribute to climate change. But our choices can make a difference. What we found with that one single substitution, it dropped that person's dietary carbon footprint by 48%. WBUR's new newsletter, Cooked, can help you help the planet from your kitchen table, whether you're omnivore, vegan, or somewhere in between. To sign up, go to WBUR.org cooked. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. The Trump administration's former defense secretary, Mark Esper, has a new book out this week. It's called A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. He spoke with our co-host, Michelle Martin, about the book. In it, Esper says that former President Trump asked him and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley about shooting protesters. This was in the summer of 2020 during a meeting about unrest that took place after the murder of George Floyd. The meeting started off pretty loud. The president was enraged. Uh, He was very upset uh, at what had been happening and it happened the night before. Uh, He was, uh, he thought that the protests made the country look weak, made us look weak and and us meant him. And he wanted to do something about it. And uh, as we went back and forth uh, discussing a number of things to include the deployment of 10,000 active duty troops, as you mentioned, we reached that point in the conversation where he He looked, frankly, at General Milley and said, can't you just shoot them? Just shoot them in the legs or something. And it was uh, it was not just a it was a question in the form of a or a suggestion in the form of a question. 
And uh, we were just all taken aback at that moment as this issue just hung very heavily in the air. What was going through your mind? Look, I entered West Point at the age of 18. And so I'd spent 21 years in uniform, both active duty and reserve, and then uh, served in, you know, worked in other parts of the national security enterprise, if you will, for uh, another 10 or so years. And so, of course, ingrained in me were the concepts of duty on a country, a professional ethic, the proper relationship between uh, the military and civilian society. And as part and parcel of that, we, you know, of course, we studied Kent State and past engagements such as that. And so when this, when the president raised this, I mean, needless to say, we were shocked. At least I was shocked. I'll speak for myself that this would even be suggested, let alone it be raised that how would you go about doing that? How can, can't you just shoot them, if you will? And again, I was taken aback. I know since General Milley and I talked afterwards, so was he just shocked by the whole idea. And this was not normal behavior. And of course, the context is the president is standing up, sitting down. He's red-faced. He's angry. He's yelling at us. He's swearing at us. And uh, this goes on for 20, 25 minutes. And it's it's a, the, obviously the toughest meeting I probably ever had. So you talk about how in the book that you and General Milley said to yourselves, you know, I'm this close to quitting. And you talk extensively in the book about that dilemma, you're not the only member of that administration who had that conversation with himself or with others close to him, people who shared his or her sense of professional ethics. So it, obviously you want people to read the book, but as briefly as you can, why didn't you? I mean, why did you stick around and why did so many others? At the end of the day, after talking to my wife, to, uh, to my predecessors in previous administration, I came down to two things. A, if I left, uh, I was very concerned about what would happen and would some of these dangerous ideas be implemented. And secondly, if I left, who would be re who would replace me? And I was fairly confident that the president would replace me with an uber loyalist, if you will, who would do exactly what he wanted. And so I, I thought the righter thing to do, the greater good, my duty was to stay and serve the country and 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 not what might make me feel good in the moment and just walk away. Do you still feel that way? I do. In, in retrospect, I feel even better about the decision because I was able to accomplish a lot of good things within the department to improve our military for the next 10, 20, 30 years. But I was also able to stop some bad things from happening and to get us to the election. Because at the end of the day, as I write in the book, I had a strategy and my game plan was get to the election. I felt that I had done my duty, that I had served the country and not the president and not the party and not a philosophy, but the country. And I got the DOD uh, through intact, and we, we did the right thing. Did you get it through intact, though? I mean, a number of people look at January 6th, and you were gone by then. But right. we, we know for a fact that there were veterans of the armed forces who attacked the Capitol on the 6th. We know for a fact that some extremists and white supremacist groups are actively recruiting from within the ranks. And there's still a question about why the National Guard wasn't called out sooner. And there's still a question about whether there were people within the Pentagon who kept the National Guard from being called in in timely fashion. Because, of course, though, for people who don't live in the understand, you know, in the District of Columbia, is not a state and has some of the functions of state, but the mayor does not have the authority to call the National Guard in the District of Columbia as as governors do. There's still a question about within the Pentagon, was there were there forces there that kept that from happening and allowed that whole event to unfold the way we all know that it did? Well, I think uh, I am convinced that in terms of DOD as an institution during my tenure, we did 
prevent any permanent damage, if you will, from political influence or, or whatnot. So I, I'm very confident about that. With regard to January 6th, I, you know, it was a terrible, tragic day. And look, I worked in the Capitol. I worked in Congress, and it really hit me hard. And uh, But look, I, I have a lot of faith in General Mark Milley, uh, the Army Secretary. I worked with them for three years. Uh, we got to wait to see what the January 6th committee report uh, lays out. But I'm confident that those men did their duty. And, you know, recently, because I, I also spoke to the January 6th committee, I, a document was shared with me. It was a DOD report where uh, some of the th- same things were stated that DOD did not drag its feet, if you will, or, uh, or, or play any games when it came to delaying the, the movement of the Guard. Look, it's, it's tough to get the Guard moving in a timely manner. It's tough to get any military unit moving in a timely manner. And I think we all wish that they had been there sooner, but that's not how the events played out that day. But I, look, I think we should all withhold judgment to see what the final report of the January 6th committee says. There are those who, I mean, the book is just is just coming out, but there are some who have heard some of the top lines that have been uh, released or, or, or leaked. And some of the comments that I've seen already, which is, this is another former top official who saw these things going on, who should have said something sooner and didn't, and saved all this for a book deal. How, how do you respond to that? I would say that I saw these things happen and did something. I stayed in the fight, in the game, and managed to, uh, to avoid bad things happening. If you read the book, you'll see any number of cases where I was able to steer off or push back bad things from happening that I'm convinced that if I had left, if I had resigned on the spot in protest, which, by the way, would have been a whole lot better for me personally, I truly believe that these bad things would have happened. It gets back to you need good people to serve, and you can't sit from the sidelines and say that every time something bad happens or, or a president does something like that, that you don't like, that people should immediately resign and protest because that's just not how it works. And you, what you end up with is a worse situation. And that was the, the question I struggled with for many, many months is, is it better off for the country if I stay or if I go? And my bottom line was I could do more good for the country, for the American people, if I stayed rather than if I walked away, particularly since I was so confident that President Trump would put in an uber loyalist who would do exactly what he wanted to do. That was former Defense Secretary Mark Esper speaking with our colleague Michelle Martin. Esper's new book, A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times, is out tomorrow. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Aspiration, a digital banking alternative designed for people who care about the environment. Customers can plant a tree with every swipe of their debit card to offset their carbon footprint. Aspiration.com green. And from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens, to help gardeners express their creativity outdoors at garden centers nationwide. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash NPR. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents.
The forecast blue skies and sunshine into the evening hours. A clear, breezy night tonight, falling to the low 40s. Tomorrow's looking good again. Bright sunshine may reach 60. Not too much of a change on Wednesday. Sunny, breezy, highs near 60. Sunshine should stick around as the week goes on, and it could feel almost summer-like with highs breaking into the 70s Thursday, maybe hitting 78 on Friday. 54 degrees now in Boston at 459. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus special tours and programs, now through Sunday at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. More at nativeplanttrust.org. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The debate over abortion rights isn't just happening in the U.S. New abortion laws recently went into effect in two South American nations. Well, there have been some radical changes in these countries, changes that would have been inconceivable a few years ago. Coming up, a look at abortion rights around the world. It's Monday, May 9th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, medical and legal experts say the potential of overturning Roe versus Wade could have implications for other reproductive rights, such as contraception and in vitro fertilization. The rising cost of fuel, energy, and food are straining rural school districts already clenched budgets. Many districts fear that continued inflation could mean trouble for programming, upkeep, and staffing. Pulitzer Prizes have been awarded to works in seven categories of arts and letters. We'll hear about the winners and how genetic testing led a food lover to live without a stomach. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Pentagon says the fighting in eastern Ukraine is increasingly defined by artillery battles with both sides now possessing substantial firepower. As NPR's Greg Myrie explains, the U.S. recently delivered nearly 90 howitzers, long-ranged heavy weapons, to help Ukraine on this front. Pentagon spokesman John Kirby says, as predicted, Ukraine and Russia are waging sustained artillery battles in the wide-open landscape of the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. There is a heavy reliance in this particular fight in the Donbass region, specifically, on artillery. And both sides are firing artillery at the other's positions. The Russians are shelling Ukrainian troops from long range, seeking to soften them up in advance of Russian ground offensives. But the Ukrainians now have more artillery power of their own, and neither side is making major breakthroughs. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Seeking to portray a united front against Russia's invasion of Ukraine, President Biden today signed a bipartisan measure that would restart a World War II-era Lend-Lease program that helped defeat Nazi Germany. The measure aimed at bolstering Kiev and Eastern European allies from further Russian aggression. The measure is largely symbolic and comes at the same time Congress is poised to unleash tens of billions in additional U.S. assistance, which includes about $20 billion in military assistance. High winds and low humidity are continuing to cause problems for firefighters battling wildfires in the southwest. The largest blaze near Las Vegas, New Mexico, is less than half contained and has burned nearly 300 square miles. 
KSFR in Santa Fe, Kevin Mershart has more. Officials have been hoping winds would die down enough to send up helicopters to assist the firefighters on the ground. Operations Chief Todd Abel says the forecast this week is for high winds to start to ease in the evenings. Those winds are going to decrease just a little bit, which will help us have a better opportunity to get some protection of those values taken care of, hopefully mitigate a little bit more fire activity, but then the winds will pick back up during the day and we'll be back kind of in the same fight we're in right now. Cities across northern New Mexico are sending aid and supplies to the fire area to help workers and evacuees while also making preparations in case new fires start closer to home. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Mershart in Santa Fe. While the antiviral drug Paxlovid has helped some people deal with COVID-19 symptoms in some rare instances, it may also be to blame for relapses among some users. That's according to reports from a number of doctors who say they've seen some symptoms in their patients' return. Paxlovid has become a major option for treating COVID patients at home due to its convenience and mostly impressive results. Government has spent more than $10 billion to buy enough medicine for 20 million people. A rough start to the week on Wall Street. The Dow dropped 653 points today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is responding to criticism of her move to endorse City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo in the race for Suffolk County District Attorney. Current acting DA Kevin Hayden is also running for the post. Hayden calls his opponent, quote, a novice attorney with zero public safety experience. But Mayor Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston that criticism reflects a desire to maintain a status quo that she says is not working. The residents of Boston in the mayor's race and in other races have said over and over again that it is time to get down to root causes, put out a clear vision and follow through. Mayor Wu says Arroyo would continue reforms put in place by the former Suffolk DA Rachel Rollins that have reduced crime and helped communities heal. The price of gasoline is breaking records in Massachusetts. AAA's latest survey finds prices have shot up 18 cents from a week ago to $4.39 a gallon for unleaded. AAA's Northeast spokesperson Mary McGuire says the major cause has been a spike in oil prices. Crude oil accounts for roughly 60 percent of the price of gasoline at the pump, and crude oil had been hovering in the $100 range. It's now closing in on $110 a barrel. Diesel prices also reached a record high for the state today, $6.27 a gallon. The sexual assault trial of former celebrity chef Mario Batali is underway in Boston. Today he waived his right to a jury trial. That means a judge will decide his fate. Batali's accuser told the court today the chef groped and kissed her against her will at a Back Bay restaurant in 2017. Batali has pleaded not guilty. His lawyers say the assault never happened. The MBTA will keep in place increased levels of commuter rail service in Dorchester, Mattapan, and Hyde Park. Two years ago, the T increased the number of weekday trains running on the Fairmont line as a pilot program. The Transit Authority said today it will make permanent those eight additional trips per day. The T says the additional service improves equitable access to transit and economic opportunities. In the forecast, clear skies tonight, chilly down around 42 degrees. Then for tomorrow, sun's back, breezy, a bit milder, up around 60 degrees for a high. Midweek on Wednesday should be sunny, again right around 60, could hit the low to upper 70s though later in the week. 54 degrees now under bright sunshine in the Boston area at 5.06. 
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com slash employment. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. If the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, many states will respond by outlawing abortion or passing new restrictions on abortion. And as closely as Americans will be watching, the rest of the world will be too. The debate over abortion rights is, of course, not only an American debate. Several countries have changed their abortion laws recently in Europe, in Latin America, So we are going to devote these next few minutes to digging in on what factors may be unique to America and what parts resonate overseas, to exploring why the possibility that Roe could be struck down is generating so much attention beyond our borders. To do that, I am joined by three NPR colleagues, U.S. political correspondent Mara Liason, also Rob Schmitz in Berlin, and Philip Reeves in Rio de Janeiro. Welcome, you three. Happy to be here. Thank you. Uh, Phil, you start, because I gather in Brazil people are watching this really closely. What has been the reaction there to the U.S. debate? There is indeed a great deal of interest in this. There's an election in Brazil in five months' time. Jair Bolsonaro, the current uh, president, is running for a second term. He's far right-wing. He's seen as an authoritarian in the making, and he is a staunch opponent of abortion. Uh, The interest around this issue that's being generated in the U.S. uh, is something that he's harnessing. Hmm. On this issue, many Brazilians agree with him. It's a criminal offence. Abortion's a criminal offence here in Brazil. It's it's only allowed in certain specific circumstances, uh, for example, when a pregnancy is a result of rape or the mother's lives threatened. And polls suggest that most Brazilians want the law to stay that way. So throwing a spotlight at this time on this highly emotive, highly polarising issue helps Bolsonaro at a time that he's trailing in the polls. And there's another thing. He's already put two conservative judges on Brazil's Supreme Court. Campaigners for abortion rights say that if he wins the second term, he'll be able to point two more, uh, making it harder for future governments to bring change. Putting conservative justices on the Supreme Court. This sounds very familiar uh, to Americans watching. Rob Schmitz, up in here. You cover Germany. Um, but I actually want to start you next door in Poland, which you also cover, because Poland stands out um, in Europe for very tight abortion restrictions. Explain. Yeah, it does. You know, first off, Poland, like Bolsonaro's Brazil, is very Catholic, and it's chipped away at its democratic institutions in recent years. The right-wing nationalist ruling party called Law and Justice has a symbiotic relationship with the Catholic Church, and their voting base are largely church-going rural Poles who are very much against abortion. Uh, In its seven years in power, uh, the Law and Justice Party has dismantled the country's judiciary and stacked Poland's courts with party loyalists who bring this conservative Catholic right-wing agenda with them to the bench. And with their help, the party has essentially banned abortion. Uh, Just like in Brazil, the only scenario when a woman is able to have an abortion in Poland is if she can prove uh, that she's been raped or if the birth will threaten her own life. Uh, Poland's Constitutional Tribunal Court limited abortion to just these two scenarios in late 2020, and that prompted the largest protests in Poland, and mostly urban Poland, since those that led to the fall of communism decades ago. You know, it's so interesting, uh, Mara Eliasson, listening to this here in the States, because... The U.S. appears to be poised to strike down federal legal protection for abortion, while Joe Biden, who supports abortion rights, is in the White House, uh, while his fellow Democrats, who 
largely support abortion rights, control Congress. And while American public opinion is with them, a majority of Americans say they want Roe versus Wade to stand. How did we get here? Well, the simple answer is that we have a very large anti-abortion rights conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And the reason we have that is because we have a system in America where the candidate with the most votes doesn't always become the president. And five of the six conservative justices on the court were nominated by presidents who came into the White House without a majority of votes, Donald Trump and George W. Bush. And in several cases, these justices were confirmed by a majority of senators, but those senators represent a minority of voters because the Senate is also a minoritarian institution, which gives an advantage to small population rural states. Just for example, right now, we have a 50-50 Senate. The 50 Democrats represent 44 million more voters than the 50 Republicans. And our founders designed a system to protect minority party rights, but I don't think they could have imagined that it would get this out of whack. But you're right. Majority public opinion on abortion has been static in the United States for many decades. People support legal abortion with restrictions. The majority wants abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. Hmm. Uh, Rob, back to Europe and broaden out from Poland, because it, Poland is quite different from, from Western Europe, where abortion is legal in most places. That's right. Abortion is legal across nearly all of Europe. You know, each country has a range of restrictions based on how many weeks of pregnancy before uh, the, the termination is illegal. And several countries require waiting periods as well as parental consent in the case of pregnant minors. Uh, but for nearly all of Europe, abortion remains legal, and there are only a handful of countries like Poland that have nearly banned it. Mm. What, Phil, what about the rest of Latin America? I mean, there's, there has been movement in other countries to change laws to make abortion more accessible. Bring us up to speed on what is happening in Colombia, in Argentina, in, in Chile. Well, there have been some radical changes in these countries, changes that would have been inconceivable a few years ago. Colombia's constitutional court this year legalized abortion within the first 24 weeks of pregnancy, and in uh, late 2020, Argentina's Congress voted to legalize in the first 14 weeks, and in Chile, which had a total ban on abortion until 2017. Abortion rights are now included in a new draft constitution that's being drawn up by a People's Assembly. That document must be approved by a mandatory popular vote, so we don't know whether it'll pass or not. But these are radical changes. Uh, many thousands of women's rights activists, the so-called green wave groups in Latin America, campaigned for years, even decades, to bring about these changes. But now I'm seeing some of them expressing concerns that these developments in the US will inspire anti-abortion groups, which already very strong in their countries to try even harder to reverse them. Hmm. Uh, let me bring us back and land on the situation here in the U.S. Uh, Maura, where do you see this going um, with the midterms, with national elections here coming up in just six months? I think where it might have the biggest effect is in Senate races. Swing state Republican Senate candidates are going to have new challenges. As long as Roe was the law of the land, they didn't have to say whether they were for or against all of these new laws that Republican state legislators are talking about. Some of them are trigger laws. They go into effect automatically. As soon as Roe is gone, some states will have no abortion with no exceptions for rape, incest, or health of the mother, life of the mother. There are other laws proposed that would ban IUDs, that would ban so-called medication abortions like Plan B. 
that would uh, give embryos the rights at the moment of fertilization. Even Mitch McConnell told USA Today this weekend that a national law banning abortion is a, quote, possibility if Republicans get power. So I think the next big debate in America is going to be about which party can be painted as the extremists on this issue, because America, majority of American voters favor a middle ground of legal abortion with restrictions, and that's going to be the fight between the two parties. We've been speaking with NPR's Mara Eliasson in Washington, with Philip Reeves in Brazil, and Rob Schmitz in Germany. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. This year's Pulitzer Prizes for Arts and Letters were announced today. The honors went to a wide range of creators and authors. NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siukas gives us the rundown. There are seven categories for the performing arts and books at the Pulitzers. This year's prizes included a rare double win in the history category in two titles that explore very different facets of America's past. Nicole Eustace won for her book, Covered with Night, a story of murder and indigenous justice in early America. Ada Ferrer's book is Cuba, an American history. The winner for biography was Chasing Me to My Grave by Winfred Rembert, as told to Aaron I. Kelly. In this memoir, the late leatherwork artist from Georgia recalled being arrested after fleeing a demonstration, escaping a lynching, and spending seven years on chain gangs. The General Nonfiction Award went to Andrea Elliott's Invisible Child. For almost 10 years, Elliott followed the story of a young girl and her family as they grappled with homelessness. In an interview with Here and Now last October, Elliott, a two-time Pulitzer winner, described the girl at the center of her story. From the very beginning, I felt just so drawn to Dasani um, because of her ability to articulate not only the injustice of her life, of being living in this way, in this mouse-infested shelter and being forced to wake up every morning in these conditions, but then also the promise of her life. The drama prize was given to Fat Ham by James Iams, a reworking of Hamlet with a queer black Southern college kid at its center. Fat Ham begins its official run in New York later this week. I think my uncle had my father killed. You got a new daddy! And now my father wants me to kill my uncle. Man, you ain't gonna kill nobody. I could. In the fiction category, author Joshua Cohen won for his novel The Netanyahu's, which is subtitled An Account of a Minor and Ultimately Even Negligible Episode in the History of a Very Famous Family. And poet Diane Seuss won for her collection entitled Frank Sonnets. In an interview in March 2021 with Literati Bookstore in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Seuss described how she'd settled on the sonnet as her form of choice. It allows me to, to think through ideas of what memory is and how we remember and what is worth remembering and the strangeness of what we remember. And the indigenous Diné composer Raven Chacon won for his Voiceless Mass, a work scored for pipe organ and ensemble. Anastasia Tsilikas, NPR News, New York. Tomorrow, Republicans in Nebraska will elect who they want to run for governor. It's come down to a tight three-way race, one which will test the power of an endorsement from former President Trump. Listen for that story tomorrow on Morning Edition.
considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, how genetic testing led a food lover to live without a stomach. On Wall Street today, the week starts up way down. The Dow dropped 2 percent, or 654 points. It ended the session at 32,246. S&P and Nasdaq lost even more ground. The S&P fell 3 and 2 tenths percent to finish at 39.91. Nasdaq surrendered 4 and 3 tenths percent to finally settle at 11,623. Details coming up on Marketplace in just over an hour. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Summer Term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer. The Celtics have another matchup with the Bucks in Milwaukee tonight, Game 4 of the Eastern Conference semifinals. Milwaukee leads the best-of-seven series two games to one. Tip-off is at 7.30. There's an elevated fire danger for most of the state today away from the coastline. The National Weather Service says gusty winds and extremely dry air are to blame. Fire officials say take extra care to prevent fires from breaking out. That includes no open burning and being careful when you discard cigarettes or other smoking materials. The forecast is next. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Goddard House Assisted Living in Brookline, embracing the aging experience for seniors in the Boston area. Learn more about their innovative programs at goddardhouse.org. And Liz Linder Photography, creating portraits and stories for life and work. Pictures talk at lizlinder.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Kind of chilly tonight, down around 42 degrees, clear skies. For tomorrow, the sun shines back, breezy, a little bit milder, around 60 for a high. 54 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches, online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants, corporate food solutions at easycater.com. And from Zoom, used by half a million businesses, a platform for phone, chat, workspaces, events, apps, and video, enabling real-time collaboration for teams around the globe. Zoom, how the world connects. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. Sasha Woodruff loves food. We're talking about her mom's dishes from Slovakia made with beef, celery root, and potato. Or baking her own confections like berry tarts with pastry cream. Or brewing jalapeno soda. She's been accused of having way too many cookbooks. But her relationship to food was forever changed by a phone call she got in 2019 from an unknown number. She said, I'm Dr. Richard Frieder. I'm the medical director at Tilogen Cancer Genetics, and I have some new information for you. I have this report. Woodruff had tested negative for the breast cancer genes known as BRCA three years before that call. But the doctor told Woodruff, thanks to new research, they could now tell she had a different dangerous mutation called CDH1 putting her at high risk for a rare stomach cancer. I was shaking and just really flustered because I really wanted this to be a spam phone call, but it it wasn't. 
Woodruff met with a genetic counselor who suggested she should get her stomach removed. I figured I would do more research and kind of prove that my genetic counselor was wrong. Because I, I think you have like these images of not being able to eat, maybe having a feeding tube, you know, and then I thought, do you want to live such a compromised life for something I love so much? I love food. And so you do question whether that's a life worth living. Woodruff, who's a public radio journalist, spent years investigating the CDH1 mutation. And eventually she did get her stomach removed. Sasha Woodruff wrote about it for NPR before her surgery last October, and she recently spoke with our co-host, Ari Shapiro. What's life for you been like lately since your gastrectomy? Uh, how have you been feeling? How have you been eating? You know, I'm actually surprised at how well I've been doing. I actually was back to pretty normal foods about a month after surgery. Uh, for the most part, I eat whatever I want. Sugar is difficult because instead of it breaking down in the stomach, it hits your bloodstream immediately. So I've been avoiding sugar, but I've been pretty much eating everything that I want. Of course, in small amounts, uh, there's a really weird sensation where I feel hungry, but I'm full, so I can't eat. Mm. So it, it's really hard to explain, and I don't think anyone who still has a stomach won't understand it. And so without a stomach, how does your digestive system actually work now? You know, once you don't have a stomach, you actually realize that you don't really need one. So... Once they took out my stomach, they actually attached my esophagus to my small intestine. So basically that kind of fermenting pot that is your stomach that has the acids that breaks your food down, uh, that is gone. And so it goes straight from the esophagus into the small intestines. And actually most digestion happens in the small intestines. It's just a little bit broken down. So you do have to chew more and eat slower, but digestion happens pretty normally. It's it's kind of amazing that we don't need a stomach. This is such a contrast with the fears that you describe when you first had the conversation about potentially having your stomach removed. And I want to rewind the clock even before that to your decision to get genetic testing in the first place. Why did you go that route? So there's always been cancer in my family. It was so both of my maternal grandparents died of cancer. My great-grandmother had a double mastectomy for breast cancer. My mom had breast cancer when I was in my in elementary school. So it just it felt like it was all around me. And so I really was concerned about the breast cancer and I thought, well, I don't really need to get genetic testing because I need to be in high, a high-risk group. I need to do extra testing. So why do I need to know about the genes? And then, you know, my sister was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and I was getting a routine physical, and my doctor said, well, do you want to just get a test? It's here. Some of my apprehensions were still there, but I just decided to do it because it was easy. So I did that test, and it came back negative, and I actually really thought that that was all that there was going to be. And then you get this phone call years later. Did you resent the doctor for giving you this news about a test that you had not explicitly asked for? Was there a part of you that said, like, I didn't want this information? Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't necessarily even want to know if I had the breast cancer gene. So I think I didn't want to know any of this. And, you know, as much cancer as we had, I think you can go into the, this couldn't happen to me. I will be the exception. 
You kind of talked to the doctor about that, right? I did. A few months before I had my surgery, I decided to go back and interview Dr. Richard Frieder. And he was very gracious. And he, uh, you know, he said, I wondered what happened to you because he hadn't heard from me in so long. And, you know, we had never met. So I decided to just go in and ask him because this phone call was so, I would say, traumatic for me. And so I, I just I wanted to know, like, what is going through a doctor's head when they are delivering this kind of news? There are bad news moments in our lives as doctors. Contrary to what you might think, I was calling you with what I thought was good news because it wasn't a destiny. It was an opportunity, an opportunity to save your life. This was such a revelation to me because it completely switched how I perceived this phone call. Because, you know, when you think about delivering a cancer diagnosis, you know, when you think about it, there's a big range of my chances for getting stomach cancer. It goes from probably like uh, somewhere in the 40s to 80%. So to think that I went from having an up to 80% chance of getting a cancer that they really have no good way of diagnosing before it's spread and is terminal to 0% chance. Like, I'm really thankful for that now. I mean, but it does take a lot of psychological work to get to that point. So is the testing that led you down this path becoming more widely available? Is this something that more people are going to have opportunities to do if they want to? Yes. And, you know, obviously, I think there are ethics of testing everyone, you know, do you want everyone to know every little gene mutation they have that could potentially become something, you know, I think this is the curse and the blessing of being at the forefront of technology, which I really am, you know, they could come back and figure out a way to to fix this. But um, at this point, this is what's available. And so I asked Frieder this question. And I said, you know, how would you advise someone in your family Or if you had this, would you do it? And he told me that if his daughter had this gene, that he would absolutely have her have the surgery and have it done as soon as possible. It's a hard decision, but it's the right decision to make based on what we know. And if in 20 years we look back and say, gee, it didn't really need to be done, so be it. You know, one of the things I was afraid of is what if in two years they find something where they can actually monitor for this so I won't have to have it and... I think he helped clear it up that, okay, so maybe we will find a cure or a better way to deal with this, but that's okay. Like, you made this decision and you'll live with it and your life will be okay. Sasha Woodruff, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks, Ari. Genomic sequencing can also raise ethical questions, and not all bioethicists agree on how much information patients should have or how they should receive it. Information can be more powerful and more damaging than a scalpel. Hear that conversation tomorrow on All Things Considered. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Some lovely spring days on the way, feeling more like summer by the end of the week. The forecast tonight clear, down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow and Wednesday could inch to the upper 50s to about 60, with a good amount of sunshine both days. A few clouds moving in for Thursday and Friday as temperatures move way up to the low to mid-70s. 54 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theater. 
presenting master storyteller and all things considered's Kevin Kling in Best Summer Ever, now through May 22nd, MRT.org. In the United States, Roe v. Wade is on the brink of being overturned. But across Latin America, abortion access is expanding. Chile, Argentina, Colombia, and Uruguay, to name a few. Why is the United States going in the opposite direction from much of the rest of the world on abortion rights? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky marked Victory Day when Russia celebrates the Soviet Union's victory in World War II with a video extolling Ukraine's contribution to the war and a warning it intends to win this one too. NPR's Frank Langfitt has more from Odessa. In the video, Zelensky strolls down an empty boulevard in Kyiv past rusted steel barriers designed to stop tanks. Today, we celebrate the day of victory over Nazism, and we will not give anyone a single piece of our history. We are proud of our ancestors, who, together with other nations in the anti-Hitler coalition, defeated Nazism, and we will not allow anyone to annex this victory. Eight million Ukrainians died in World War II. Zelensky says Ukrainians pushed the Nazis from this land, and they'll do the same to the Russians. Frank Langford, NPR News, Odessa. President Biden wants to make high-speed internet more affordable. At a White House event today, Biden said $65 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure law will go to broadening the reach of internet in the U.S. as part of the Affordable Connectivity Program. He says a bipartisan coalition and internet provider companies all came together to support the plan. The bottom line is this. My top priority is fighting inflation and lowering prices for families and things they need. Today's announcement is going to give millions of families a little more, a little more breathing room to help them pay their bills. Plans would cost around $30 a month for eligible households, and for many, additional subsidies could cover the cost entirely. Wall Street lower by the bell, the Dow down 653 points, the Nasdaq down 521, the S&P 500 down 132 points. For the Nasdaq, that's a drop of 4.2 percent. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Gas prices in Massachusetts are at an all-time high. They've risen 18 cents in one week. WBUR's Matt Ledden reports on what's causing the spike. The average price of regular unleaded in Massachusetts is $4.39 a gallon. The price of crude oil, which accounts for more than half the cost of gas, is also up. AAA Northeast spokeswoman Mary McGuire says another reason for the increase, we're driving more. We're seeing strong demand here in Massachusetts, and we live in a densely populated area. So that demand for gasoline, coupled with higher crude oil prices, is definitely boosting prices at the pump. Diesel prices also reached a record high for the state today at $6.27 a gallon. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Matt Ludden. At least two school districts in the state are recommending that students and staff wear masks indoors amid rising COVID cases. The recommendation went into effect today at Arlington and Cambridge Public Schools. School officials point to increases in school cases and COVID-related hospitalizations in the community. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is urging city councilors to approve her plan to create a new behavioral health center. Wu's proposed budget would use some of the city's federal recovery funds to launch the facility and hire someone to lead it. 
The mayor tells WBR's Radio Boston the center will help address the rising need for mental health services that school officials are seeing. They're scared that we can't get our young people treatment in the time that they need or in the type of response that they need. And so this is an investment that we are hoping to make at the city level to try to change the dynamic. The center would focus on hiring more multilingual clinicians and clinicians of color. There's a new interim leader for the state agency that regulates the use of marijuana. Today, Massachusetts Treasurer Deb Goldberg named Sarah Kim as interim chair of the Cannabis Control Commission. Kim is currently deputy treasurer and general counsel for the treasurer's office. She's taking over at the Cannabis Control Commission to replace the former chair, Steve Hoffman. He resigned last month without explanation after five years on the job. And firefighters in Salem are battling windy conditions as they try to put out a fire that spread to at least two buildings. The fire broke out in a residential building this afternoon on Hancock Street in Salem. Officials are urging people to avoid the area. The cause is not known. It's not known if anybody's been hurt. Meteorologists have been warning of an elevated fire danger today because of gusty winds and extremely dry air. Those conditions should continue for a couple of days anyway. Tonight, clear, windy, down around the mid-40s. Tomorrow and Wednesday could make it to the upper 50s to about 60. Plenty of sunshine, pretty dry both days. 54 degrees now in the Boston area at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. DataIQ.com. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. And I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. The Philippines has a presumptive winner for its presidential election. And he has a familiar name. Ferdinand Marcos Jr. has emerged with around 30 million votes, according to unofficial tallies by the Philippines Commission on Elections. That is double the number of votes of his nearest competitor, Vice President Lenny Robredo. It marks the culmination of the Marcos family's desire to return to the presidential palace 35 years after the family's patriarch, Ferdinand Marcos Sr., was out in a popular uprising over corruption and human rights violations. Joining us now from Manila is NPR's Julie McCarthy. Hey, Julie. Hi there. All right, so Marcos was projected to win, right? But this appears to have been a margin of victory that I understand not even his most generous voter surveys forecasted. Is that correct? That's correct. One quick little qualifier. The official count begins Tuesday afternoon here, and the winner will be announced in the coming days. But these preliminary numbers tonight indicate an extraordinary comeback for the Marcos family that was forced into exile more than three decades ago. And Marcos briefly appeared at the campaign headquarters here in Manila tonight when it appeared that his lead was unassailable. He was calm, but there was emotion in his voice, Elsa, as he was thanking those who had made this extraordinary night possible. I want to thank you for all that you have done for us. There are thousands of you out there, volunteers, parallel groups, political leaders that have cast their lot with us because of their belief 
in uh, our message of uh, unity. This unity theme, you know, has been criticized as vague and it raised questions about whether he had solid policy plans to govern. And this evening, commentator Richard Hadarian said he hoped it meant that Marcos would govern for all, including those who did not vote for him. Here he is. It's also important that prospective President Marcos also sends the right signal to his supporters that in short, lead by example. If he's really someone who's not into negative campaigning, into fights, he really wants unity, I hope his supporters also project that. And what does it mean, Julie, for the Philippines that the son of a dictator that was once so feared now stands poised to take the reins of power? Yeah, it's, it's history coming full circle here, and it didn't happen overnight. The Marcos revival is a long-term enterprise built over years, and it capitalized on a couple of things, on Filipinos fed up with successive governments that didn't deliver change, uh, more equality most prominently, and then there was the entire template of disinformation that characterized the election campaign. Hmm. How it was waged is being very closely watched outside the Philippines, and the message is that disinformation works and the dynasty is alive and well. And the Marcoses have been practitioners of both. Marcos Jr. denies he has anything to do with the disinformation of rivals like Lenny Robredo. But the fact is, he was very robust in rewriting the Marcos family legacy. He starred in slick videos that cast his father as a visionary, airbrushing out any corruption and abuses. Well, speaking of political dynasties, what about the Duterte family? Didn't Sarah Duterte run for vice president alongside Marcos Jr.? She did. That's right. Two dynasts have paired up and won the brass ring, evidently. Sarah Duterte is the daughter of President Duterte, and she actually kept pace through the night with Marcos, vote for vote. He's now pulled ahead. But they're a very strong team here. And what it says is these dynasties have the means and the political might in this case, certainly, to suck the oxygen out of the room, really. And it's a perennial concern for those worried for Philippine democracy and opening it up to others to participate. That is NPR's Julie McCarthy in Manila. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. Overturning Roe v. Wade could have implications for more than access to abortion. Medical and legal experts say it could open the door to restrictions on other types of reproductive health care, as NPR's Sarah McCammon reports. The leaked draft of a Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade has fueled speculation and concern about what could come next and what else Republican-controlled states might try to restrict. Dr. Kavita Arora is an OBGYN in North Carolina. To say that we are incredibly concerned would I think actually be putting it mildly. Aurora is chair of the Ethics Committee at the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She says the decision could have far-reaching implications for other types of care, including birth control, emergency contraception known as Plan B, trans-affirming care, and fertility treatments such as IVF, which can produce leftover embryos. This threatens our ability to take care of patients on a daily basis. Most types of contraception prevent a sperm from fertilizing an egg. But as a second line of defense, Aurora says some can stop an already fertilized egg from implanting in the uterus, which is considered the beginning of a pregnancy. But in changing the definition of when pregnancy starts um, to just that fertilization, it would 
compromise our ability to provide access to really highly effective methods of contraception, such as the copper IUD. Kristen Hawkins is president of the anti-abortion rights group Students for Life of America, which is pushing for state and federal legislation to recognize human life as beginning, quote, at conception. Her group takes the position that some types of birth control are, quote, mislabeled as contraception, a view at odds with the medical consensus. I think legislators should be able to have the right uh, to decide uh, and to investigate if there are devices, if there's chemicals that are ending the lives of their citizens in their state. Last week, a Louisiana state lawmaker proposed a bill that would classify abortion as a homicide beginning at the moment of fertilization. On CNN's State of the Union on Sunday, host Jake Tapper asked Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves about the bill in his neighboring state. Reeves declined to rule out support for similar legislation. But so just to be clear, you have no intention of seeking to ban IUDs or Plan B? That, that is not what we're focused on at this time. We're, we're focused on uh, looking at, see what the court allows for. Under Roe, the right to an abortion is guaranteed under the right to privacy. That's also part of the rationale for the Griswold v. Connecticut decision in 1965, which recognized a right to contraception for married people and eventually everyone else. In his draft opinion, Justice Samuel Alito argued that abortion is different from other rights, like contraception and marriage, because he said it destroys fetal life. But Kiara M. Bridges, a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, says Alito's originalist view of the Constitution offers no guarantees that women's rights will be protected. Because women were not part of the body politic, um, the rights that are important to people who can get pregnant are just not contemplated by the Constitution. The drafters of the Constitution could care less about what women's concerns were, what they needed in order to be fully human in society. Bridges says if the court is willing to do away with longstanding precedent like Roe, it's impossible to predict what other rights could also be in question. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Washington. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Inflation is at the front of mind for school districts across the country, especially in rural areas where longer bus routes add up to much higher transportation costs. As Iowa Public Radio's Kendall Crawford reports, districts in western Iowa are dipping, dipping into their reserve funds to fuel up buses. Across the country, students in rural areas often only have one option for getting to school. They rely on bright yellow school buses, shuttling them back and forth. The one that pulls into Maple Valley Anthon Odo High School holds 100 gallons of diesel fuel. It's just one of eight buses carrying students from their homes to schools here in western Iowa. Superintendent Jeff Thielander says these buses drive across the county around 20 miles each day. And as diesel prices at the pump linger at more than $5 a gallon, he says that now puts them $16,000 over budget. 
it's a little complicated. It's not easy to just say, hey, we'll just remove a route because we don't want to have a child on a bus more than the legal limit of 55 minutes either. On top of that, food inflation means the district is spending more than $500 extra on school lunches each week. That leaves Thielander with a big budget-cutting dilemma. Where do we make potential decisions that have the least impact on the education of our kids? It's not easy. While businesses can raise the price of their goods, schools are tied to per-pupil state funding. And many rural schools across the nation are facing declining enrollment numbers. With each student they lose, they face less funding for often the same operating costs. Alan Pratt is the executive director of the National Rural Education Association. The funding they receive from the state and the federal government kind of slowly weaning away and how we're going to pick up the slack. There's just a lot of unknowns. And I think that's the fear area that people are kind of living in is what's it going to look like in a year? All right, uh, got a sheet of paper of the budget in front of you. At a recent school board meeting, Westwood Community School District tried to prepare for that uncertain future. It's one of 81 Iowa school districts whose enrollment declined this year. Superintendent Jay Lett says rising costs are making it harder to address one of the district's biggest issues, staffing shortages. Lett says they've raised their wages for positions like substitute staff and for bus drivers, whose average hourly rate is $18. But as inflation shrinks their budget, he says the district feels stuck. It just can't compete with other starting wages. It's just put school districts in across the state and across the nation kind of behind a big boulder because we can't get the people to our schools to work. Iowa State Education Association President Mike Baranek says when inflation hits rural schools, it can send ripple effects throughout the entire system, threatening staffing levels and programming. The district can't afford to offer an AP course, then those students in those communities won't have the same opportunities that would occur in a larger district. At Lawton Bronson Community School District in Northwest Iowa, Superintendent Chad Shook says they're looking first to other areas to save money. It's likely they'll have to postpone capital projects, like the resurfacing of their track field and the repaving of their parking lot. But I don't know how many years of this we can take. He says his main budget strategy right now rests largely on hope. Hope that the inflation spiral unwinds a bit before they have to sacrifice anything too close to the classroom. For NPR News, I'm Kendall Crawford in Western Iowa. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on All Things Considered, the new TV show Gaslit that highlights some of the forgotten stories of figures in the Watergate scandal, including Martha Michels. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Forecast is next. Shein, the online-only fashion brand based in China, has its biggest customer base here. They're the next wave. It's ultra-fast fashion. I'm Kai Rizdal. Ultra-fast and worth $100 billion. We'll tell you about it next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
Warming weather is on the way. The forecast tonight clear down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow and Wednesday could inch to the upper 50s to about 60. Plenty of sunshine both days. A few clouds moving for Thursday and Friday. A lot of sunshine still, though. Temperatures move way up to the low to mid-70s. The folks at the tippy-top of New England are raving about a light show last night. People at the Mount Washington Observatory reported the northern lights were visible from the region's highest peak for about 10 minutes. The last time they were spotted was back in October. No word right now on when they will appear once again. Celtics have another matchup with the Bucks in Milwaukee tonight in Game 4 of the Eastern Conference semifinals. Milwaukee leads the best-of-seven series two games to one. Tip-off tonight is at 7.30. It's 5.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. The Air Force has been tracking and surveying these drone crews for years. They know that 20% of them have clinically high levels of emotional distress. They know that witnessing civilian casualties can make you eight times more likely to have PTSD. They know all of this stuff. They just don't know what to do about it. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Adrian Florido. And I'm Elsa Chang. Gaslit shows the Watergate break-in and ensuing scandal as a botched attempt by a bumbling bunch of crooks who had no business leading a life of crime. John Oliver used to have the saying where he called the Trump-Russia scandal stupid Watergate. But I'd watch that and think, well, if you've read the history, you know Watergate was stupid Watergate. In politics, in business, these criminals are not, by and large, very smart people. That is showrunner Robbie Pickering. He knows the history, and his series makes central one figure who has been relegated to a peripheral role in books and movies, Martha Mitchell, the wife of then-Attorney General John Mitchell. In the new series Gaslit, Julia Roberts plays Martha, the first person to blow the whistle on Watergate. I decided long ago that I will say how I feel. And if that does not conform to the president's message, so be it. If that gets me banned off Air Force One, I will fly commercial. Pickering says his fascination with Watergate dates back to childhood during Richard Nixon's funeral. We had one of those little breakfast table TVs. And I looked over to my mom and she was just weeping. And all I knew about Richard Nixon up to that point was kind of what the general impression was, the post-Watergate 80s, 90s impression, which was that he was a kind of a disgraceful president. So I, I just was confused and asked her why she was crying. And she turned to me, <laughs> yeah. tears in her eyes, and she said yeah. he was a great man. He was a good man. He was misunderstood. And that the liberals did this to him. And, you know, it started kind of this lifelong fascination with not just Nixon. It started with Nixon, uh, who's immensely fascinating, uh, but he's been done to death. And, it, and it, re- it really expanded the people around Nixon and the kind of... Totally. Yeah, and the culture around Nixon. Like your yeah. series focuses on someone not a lot of people talk about when they mention Watergate, and that is Martha Mitchell, the former sure. wife of then Attorney General John Mitchell. Let me ask you, out of all the characters in Watergate, what drew you in the most about Martha Mitchell? Um, the duality, and it's just very complex, and I, I've always been fascinated with it. And Martha 
being the hero she was, she started out as as is really complicit in a lot of the things Nixon did, and um, she then she started speaking out because actually she was just always jealous of the pull uh, Nixon had on her husband John Mitchell, who was his campaign manager and attorney general, and she was really jealous <laughs> of it, and that's really where the genesis of her speaking out about Watergate came from, and it came from this selfish right. place. And it came from as selfish a place as her complicity did, but it was heroic. Why do you think Martha Mitchell's story has sort of disappeared from the mainstream retellings of the Watergate scandal? I wish I had a better answer for you than the fact that it's just she's a woman and she was an alcoholic and a complicated woman. I mean, one of the, 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 the exciting things about seeing Julia... Roberts play this character is she's not, you know, she's not a typical good guy. She, she, I mean, if I met Martha Mitchell at a party, I always said this to my, my friend Amelia who worked on the show with me. If I met Martha Mitchell at a party, I, I'd probably immediately be like, get that, get that person away from me. She's like, <laughs> Someone save me. Someone come exactly. up to me. I'm, Ask me if I want to go out to the bar for another exactly. drink. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was just very, it's just always been very easy to uh, disregard women like that, even when they're telling the truth. And she was surrounded by flawed people, but somehow yeah. she's, she's forgotten and disregarded in history, even though she was the first one among them to publicly tell the truth about it. It's, it's you know, yeah. I wish I had a better answer for why Frank Wills, who stopped the Watergate burglary. Right, this is the security guard at yeah, the building. Yeah, is, is mm-hmm. disregarded in the fact that he's a black man. But we all know if he was white, you know, everybody would know his name. A hundred percent. You know, I was mesmerized watching the depiction of Martha and John's marriage, because even though it was such a brutal and cruel marriage, you also portrayed this intense love between them. Like John had this one line in this scene where he says, a good marriage will bore you to death. (laughs) kind of marriage you want? Are you lucky? And you're cursed. There's nothing like it. Where did you get this idea that even though the Mitchells' marriage wasn't a so-called good marriage, it deeply fed something in both of them? Were you more storyteller or historian there? No, I mean, if you read about their marriage, I mean, honestly, their marriage was so hot. <laughs> it was, it was, um, hot in all senses of that word. Yeah. It was like, uh, you know, they'd have these big Washington parties and they'd both get drunk and just start throwing things at each other upstairs. Like everybody would hear it and you just know they had great sex after that. You know, like, they, they, <laughs> I mean, these two people couldn't get enough of each other. Yeah, They were addicted to each other and obsessed with each other. And um, the real tragedy of it is that uh, John Mitchell, you know, basically threw that all away because he, because the sway of being valued by uh, Richard Nixon was just too great for him. You know, Martha Mitchell, she's not memorialized in history as someone who was key to bringing down the Nixon administration, but your series makes the case that she was. And the personal costs that she suffered from Watergate were profound. Did you get the sense that she ever fully understood how much she was gaslit, how much she was manipulated, and that she did play a hugely important role in this story? 
I think and what I hope is in the end she didn't care about that stuff. That she found some peace um, towards the end of her life that she couldn't find in her marriage with John Mitchell. I, I, my reading in between the lines of their marriage, and I don't want to give the, away the ending, but my, my reading in between the lines is that, you know, John Mitchell was the one left with a heavy psychological burden for what mm-hmm. he had done to his wife. He, mm-hmm. he never really found that same kind of love again, and I think it really haunted him. You know, I think many of us look back on that person we loved when we were, you know, 27, who I always call them the worst person. Everybody has <laughs> right. the worst person right. they'll ever date. Or totally. You know, that's somehow you two were toxic together. And yet you're addicted. But I think Martha, because of what she did, she found a greater, she found something greater than that. And and uh, she she might have gotten out with the raw end of the deal uh, history-wise and in the history books. But I think emotionally, I, I do think when you read about her towards the end, she found a lot of peace. Well, you left us that cliffhanger. We only got to see seven of the eight episodes, so I can't wait for the final yeah, episode. Yeah, the seventh episode <laughs> of this show is, is uh, one of the craziest. It's so weird and so funny and so tragic. And uh, just like the show is. Robbie Pickering is the creator of the new show, Gaslit. It's streaming on Stars Now. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Elsa. I really appreciate it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from your part-time controller. Your part-time controller is hiring full and part-time accountants to assist nonprofits while working from home and at client offices. More at yourparttimecontroller.com employment. And from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Vladimir Putin defends his war on Ukraine by portraying it as a fight against Nazis. Coming up, Russian Orthodox parishes in the U.S. have been winning converts, including white nationalists. They are anti-abortion, they're anti-trans. There's very distinct gender roles in the church and in the domestic sphere. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, the former president of Honduras has been extradited to the U.S., where he's facing serious criminal charges for his work with drug cartels. Protecting drug shipments, protecting specific drug traffickers um, to help facilitate the movement of cocaine up towards the United States. The Biden administration is rolling out its new push for lower internet costs. Also ahead, a lifelong memory of comfort from a warm cookie. It's 6.01. News headlines and the numbers from Wall Street are coming up next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Russian President Vladimir Putin is praising Russian troops fighting in Ukraine as part of celebrations marking Victory Day in Russia. The national holiday honors victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow reports on Putin's speech earlier today in Red Square. Speaking before troops and dignitaries on Red Square, President Putin drew direct parallels between the Soviet victory in 1945 and Russian forces battling what the Kremlin claims are fascists in modern-day Ukraine. You are fighting for the motherland, for its future, so that no one forgets the lessons of World War II, said Putin. But Putin defied speculation he might use the occasion to expand the military campaign. He also recognized the grief of Russian military families whose sons were injured or killed in combat. Putin once again defended Russia's actions as a necessary response to a hostile West, but offered few clues on a path to victory in what he once promised was a limited military campaign. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. In a further showing of support for Ukraine, this time on the economic front, U.S. trade officials say they're suspending a 25 percent import tax on steel from that country. Commerce Department today announcing it plans to suspend the tariffs for a year. Some of Ukraine's steel communities have been among the hardest hit as a result of Russia's ongoing invasion, including the steel mill in Mariupol that remains the only part of the strategically important port city not currently under Russian control. Abortion rights supporters and providers in Illinois say they're preparing for what could be a surge of out-of-state patients. That's if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. NPR Cheryl Corley reports in Illinois, abortions would remain legal regardless of what the Supreme Court does. Under Illinois law, reproductive health care, including abortions, is considered a fundamental right. The latest figures from the state health department show that in 2020, more than 9,600 non-residents received abortions in Illinois. Jennifer Welch, the president of Planned Parenthood in Illinois, says if Roe v. Wade is reversed, as many as 20 to 30,000 more people from out of state could seek abortions in Illinois. Right now, we're looking to add staff, add shifts, figure out more days when we can perform services for the patients who need us. Two of the agency's 17 health centers are located near the borders of Wisconsin and Indiana. Cheryl Corley, NPR News, Chicago. The Department of Housing and Urban Development says it will double the size of its eviction protection program, which seeks to help pay for legal assistance for people looking to stay in their homes. The $20 million HUD program announced today will fund legal services for families facing eviction, though it will not provide direct rental assistance. The sell-off continued on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 650. 53 points. The Nasdaq fell 521 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is reviewing how the city is providing social services near the intersection of Mass Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard in the South End. Today, the mayor said the city is limiting operations at an engagement center in the area and trying to decentralize the social services the center offers. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. Wu tells WBUR's Radio Boston the number of people gathering in the area prompted her decision to restrict operations at the center, which helps connect people with housing and services for addiction and mental health. We continue to see with the warming weather, large crowds gathering, and that has been difficult for public safety. 
The center opened in December, just before the city removed the remaining tents from a large homeless tent encampment. Wu says more than 180 people have been placed in low-threshold housing since the encampment was dismantled. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Drivers in Massachusetts are paying the highest prices ever recorded in the state for gasoline and diesel. AAA reports the statewide average prices for both fuels hit all-time records today. For regular unleaded, the average cost is now $4.39 a gallon. That's up 18 cents in one week. For diesel, it's $6.27 a gallon. It shot up 37 cents in one week. Governor Charlie Baker says lawmakers should act now to pass a $3.5 billion economic development bill he proposed. Money would go to infrastructure projects in every city and town in the state with the goal of revitalizing downtowns. The governor says too many communities have yet to recover economically from the pandemic. If we don't get these dollars into the hands of cities and towns across the state now so that they can begin the process associated with planning, designing, and reimagining and jumpstarting their local economies and their downtowns, we'll continue to see empty storefronts and quiet main streets for years to come. Baker says another reason to act now is that the federal COVID relief dollars that would help pay for the projects must be spent by 2026. UMass Lowell will have a new chancellor this summer. Today, school leaders selected Julie Chen to lead the school. She's currently a vice chancellor at UMass Lowell. She's worked there for 25 years. Chen will replace Chancellor Jackie Maloney, who is retiring in the forecast. Beautiful day today. Nice evening. Clear, chilly overnight tonight, down around 42. Tomorrow, sunshine returns breezy, a little bit milder about 60 for a high. Same for midweek. Wednesday should be sunny, maybe a few clouds around. Again, just about 60 degrees. Could hit the low to upper 70s later in the week. Holding steady at 54 degrees now in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles. And I'm Adrian Florido in Culver City, California. Today in Russia, a celebration 77 years old. At 10 a.m., the gigantic parade starts. A last Red Army band is first in line as Soviet Russia hails the dawn of victory. In May of 1945, Russians celebrated the defeat of Nazi Germany, something they still do each year on May 9th, Victory Day. That is sound from today. It's a military band in Moscow's Red Square where tanks and thousands of soldiers paraded. With Russia now occupying a very different position on the world stage than it did at the end of World War II. In the third month of Russia's attack on Ukraine, international observers braced for what Russian President Vladimir Putin might say in his big speech. There was speculation Putin might use the day to celebrate victory in Ukraine, or signal Russian plans to mobilize for a larger conflict. In the end, Putin didn't do either. Though he acknowledged Russian deaths in Ukraine, there were no claims of victory and no signal of widening action. Instead, Putin, addressing Russian soldiers, committed to stay the course in Ukraine and tied Russian action there to its fight against fascism 77 years ago. You 
You are fighting for our motherland, he said, its future so that nobody forgets the lessons of World War II. He added there is no place in today's world for Nazis. Putin has used false claims of Nazism in Ukraine to justify Russian attacks. And while today's Victory Day celebration was smaller than in recent years, it's a holiday that's grown under Putin, who has used it to rally nationalist sentiment. Which brings us to a story about a surprising place where Russian nationalist sentiment is growing, right here in the U.S. We're talking about Russian Orthodox parishes sprouting up in the South and Upper Midwest, in places with few direct links to Russia. These tiny congregations are mostly made up of American evangelicals and Catholics who've converted. But among them is a growing network of white nationalists, some of whom closely identify with Vladimir Putin. NPR's Odette Youssef has the story. In the fall of 2017, anthropologist Sarah Riccardi Swartz moved to a tiny Appalachian town in West Virginia. She was there to study a religious community known as the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, or ROKOR for short. And what she really wanted to understand was why this lesser-known faith tradition was appealing to American Christians who had absolutely no links to Russia. It's typically an immigrant faith, so I was really interested in that experience and why it spoke to converts. Riccardi Swartz is a postdoctoral fellow at Arizona State University. Her book, based on her research, came out last month. What she found was a community of white American Christians who were disillusioned with change in the U.S. and who longed for the social and gender boundaries of the past. They are anti-abortion, they're uh, pro-heteronormative families, they're anti-trans. There's very distinct gender roles in the church and in the domestic sphere. Riccardi Swartz said these converts believed that in Rocor, they had found a church that has remained the same regardless of place or politics, where tradition and hierarchy rule. But she also found that some of these converts weren't only searching for religious purity. I really didn't see the racism up close until I talked to a man named Dean. Dean is a pseudonym. Riccardi Swartz doesn't use real names in her published work in accordance with the ethics of her field. And he said, I'm so angry. And I said, well, why are you angry? And he said, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a white guy. I've been pushed to the margins in this diverse society. And he said, my whole neighborhood is changing. There's all of these gays and, and there's all of these different people. And you can't even get a job now as a white guy because you're, you're, like, you're oppressed. Views like these aren't unheard of. But Riccardi Swartz was surprised by what Dean said next. He also talked about how much he supported Vladimir Putin and Russia. And then he, like, stopped and he sort of smiled. And he said, do you know what I have upstairs? And I said, no, what do you have upstairs? I've never been to your house before. And he said, I have a a gun safe and I have lots of guns. And I I know that there's a war coming. And I want to be on the right side of that war. And I said who is the war with? Who's the right side? And he said, Russia's the right side. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us! When neo-Nazis and white nationalists rallied in Charlottesville almost five years ago, the language they used was new to many Americans. Since then, talk of a so-called great replacement and, quote, forced multiculturalism has bled into more mainstream rhetoric on the right. Some Orthodox converts were among those stoking those fears from the beginning. 
Perhaps the most notorious was Matthew Heimbach. He had established the neo-Nazi traditionalist Worker Party, which helped organize the rally in Charlottesville. Years before that deadly rally, he had been excommunicated from a non-Russian Orthodox church after clergy became aware of his, quote, nationalist segregationist views. But Orthodoxy is decentralized. There are nearly two dozen branches, including Greek, Russian, Coptic, Antiochian, and more. When Heimbach was booted from one, he joined another. Those who track the rise of extremism in Orthodoxy say it's particularly acute in Rokor, the Russian church, but other branches of the church haven't been immune. Inga Leonova is founder of The Wheel, a journal on Orthodoxy and culture. She says as soon as she started writing about this, the floodgates opened. There are people who are studying this stuff, and so they've been coming out of the woodwork and supplying me with a lot of information. Those who study the influx of extremists to Orthodoxy say in terms of numbers, it's small. Orthodox Christians are less than half a percent of the U.S. population, and within Orthodoxy, these elements are considered fringe. But they also warn that it would be dangerous to ignore. They note that these few extremists are networking with outside groups and producing online media that evangelize hate in the name of orthodoxy. Their podcasts and internet shows revolve around anti-Semitism, contempt for women's and LGBTQ rights, xenophobia, and full-throated support of white nationalists, including some who've been convicted of violent hate crimes. More recently, some have used their channels to amplify pro-Putin propaganda. Here's the deal also, you know, Russia is uh, a Christian nationalist nation. They're actually Orthodox Christian or Russian Orthodox. So The know, day before Russia invaded Ukraine, a clip from a far-right talk show on the web made the rounds on social media. It featured a woman named Lauren Witzke, who was the 2020 GOP candidate for Senate from Delaware. Witzke is also in the process of converting to Russian Orthodoxy. I identify more with Russian, uh, with Putin's Christian values than I do with Joe Biden. Witzke declined to speak with NPR for this story. A loyal MAGA supporter, she aligns with the white nationalist America First movement and ran on an anti-immigration platform. At one point, she seemed to support QAnon conspiracies, but has since renounced it. Aram Sarkissian says this pro-Putin stance is common among far-right converts to orthodoxy. They see in him an orthodox leader who stands for their perspectives on these culture wars issues, who speaks in the same blustery language that they look for in a strong leader. Sarkisian is a postdoctoral fellow who studies the history of Eastern Orthodox Christians in the U.S. at Northwestern University. He says Kremlin propaganda has styled Putin as a pious defender of orthodoxy and traditional values. This has appealed to Christian fundamentalists in the U.S. Putin has also positioned himself as a foil to pluralist democracies of the West. That has appealed to America's white nationalists. Now with the war, Putin has received religious cover from the head of the church. The patriarch in Moscow claimed the invasion of Ukraine is necessary to protect Orthodox Ukrainians from Western influence, namely gay pride parades. In the U.S., some lifelong Rokor adherents have left their churches because of this. You know, somebody just said we should stand and pray for both sides. Well, were the Brits supposed to pray for Hitler and Churchill at the same time? Liana Zazulin grew up in a Rokor community in Long Island. She's bewildered by the admiration these new converts hold for Putin and by the draw that her beloved church holds for white nationalists. But Zazulin says she's seen a growing tolerance for racism in the church. Suddenly you would like turn around and go, I don't recognize this. 
Four decades ago, when she married her African-American husband, they were welcomed. But as the church expanded into new areas of the U.S., their kids experienced racism. Those shifting attitudes may have signaled to white nationalists that this church would be a place where they would be tolerated. Inga Leonova uses the word infiltration when she talks about this, and she feels bishops across orthodoxy are intentionally looking the other way. She says it's frustrating, but still, she chooses to remain orthodox. It's a treasure that I cherish that has formed me, that has formed paradoxically, maybe for some uh, people, my views on the value of each human person. Whether black, white, Asian, female, gay, or transgender, Leonova says this is what she understands orthodoxy to be. Odette Youssef, NPR News. Next, consider this podcast. As we wait to see if a huge legal shift is coming for abortion access, studies show that the economic and social shift could look like. More on who could be hit hardest if Roe versus Wade is overturned. Listen to NPR's news podcast, Consider This, where we go a little deeper on a story or two in the news to help you make sense of the day. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on Marketplace on WBUR, an online-only business model that could make fast fashion even faster. That's coming up on Marketplace starting at 6.30. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass Farmers Markets. Spring is here, and farmers markets are opening. Find an open market near you at massfarmersmarkets.org. Today, the week on Wall Street started up way down. The Dow dropped 2%, 654 points, to end the session at 32,246. S&P and NASDAQ lost even more ground. The S&P fell 3 and 2 tenths percent to finish at 39.91. The NASDAQ surrendered 4 and 3 tenths of a percent to finally settle at 11,623. Workers in the Boston area have seen their pay increase faster than they have since 2006, The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported today that wages and salaries in the region rose 6.1 percent over the last year. Even so, it didn't keep up with rising costs. Inflation grew 8.5 percent during the same period. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 6th. Semesteroff.com. And Comcast Business, helping protect small businesses with Comcast Business Security Edge. Powering possibilities, Comcast Business Internet required. Restrictions apply. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. Nice clear skies overnight tonight down in the mid-40s. Tomorrow and Wednesday, making it to the upper 50s to about 60 degrees. Plenty of sunshine both days. Maybe a few clouds moving in on Wednesday. 54 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR.
WBUR supporters include Porter Square Books, a neighborhood bookstore in Cambridge and Boston with extended summer hours. Events, book recommendations, and more, portersquarebooks.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Adrian Florido. Last month, the former president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez, was loaded onto a plane owned by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency and extradited to the United States. Tomorrow, Hernandez will be arraigned in a New York courtroom on charges that for two decades, including during his time as president, he worked with drug cartels to help send hundreds of tons of cocaine into the United States. Sarah Kanosian is a reporter for Reuters and has been following this story. Uh, Welcome. Hi there. Thank you. When he announced uh, the charges last month, Attorney General Merrick Garland accused Hernandez of running Honduras, in Garland's words, as a narco state. What did he mean by that? What are the sorts of things that he's accused of having done? The list is long, and some details came out uh, during the trial of his brother, Tony, who was also convicted on narco trafficking charges. It ranges from accepting money from drug traffickers to finance his political campaigns to protecting drug shipments, protecting specific drug traffickers um, to help facilitate the movement of cocaine up towards the United States. Uh, I understand he's accused of using the military to help get those drugs into the U.S. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Sort of uh, when you read the indictment, it mentions using military officers to help protect drug traffickers, leaking information to drug traffickers about anti-narcotics operations, oftentimes anti-narcotics operations done in conjunction with the United States. Because Juan Orlando was a key ally to the United States in anti-drug efforts. So sometimes, though, that information would get leaked to drug traffickers who were favored by the military or in different part of the government. Um, to help facilitate the movement of drugs. And is he accused of having personally profited from the proceeds of these drug shipments? Yeah, and primarily a lot of that money went into his political campaigns. I think most audience members are familiar with El Chapo from Mexico's Sinaloa cartel. And he, this came out during the trial of Juan Orlando's brother, Tony, was accused of giving a million dollars that went into one of Juan Orlando's campaigns. Uh, Well, uh, Hernandez will be in a New York courtroom tomorrow, as we mentioned. How is he expected to plead to these charges against him? All signs point that he's going to plead not guilty. He himself has long denied the drug charges, but the fact that he was such a prominent U.S. ally in Central America um, in anti-narcotic efforts is a key part of his defense team's argument. Because during his time, uh, Honduras extradited several narco-traffickers to the United States, um, some of who have come out saying that they bribed Juan Orlando or in some way had dealings with him. And his defense team says, well, they're taking the word from these narco-traffickers, but at the same time, he cooperated so much with the United States. It is somewhat surprising, though, right? Because, I mean, just a few years ago, Hernandez seemed to enjoy a pretty good relationship with the U.S., especially on issues of immigration and security. President Donald Trump even shook his hand at the U.N. in 2019. So so what happened? How did the relationship take such a turn? I mean, that is a question why Juan Orlando was able to hold such good relationships with various administrations 
Trump, but also under Democratic administrations like Obama. There were good relationships on on the one side, but this investigation was going on on the other. I think in some cases, one hand didn't know what the other one was doing. And then on the other, the United States government felt like they needed a partner and he was willing to step up and do some things that various U.S. governments wanted. So in playing nice, he sort of bought himself time. But at the same time, there were these ongoing investigations. Uh, well, Honduras' new president, uh, Xiomara Castro, she fully cooperated with her predecessor's extradition, it seems. Uh, what does this signal about the U.S.-Honduras relationship now, you think? I think it's at a tense moment, but I think that there is a lot of hope. In speaking with a couple members of her administration, there is does seem to be a willingness to want to cooperate with the United States and try and run a government that is less corrupt than the previous one. Sarah Kanosian is a reporter for Reuters. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The series My Unsung Hero from the team at Hidden Brain tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Julie Ort. When Julie started college, she was recovering from a major spinal cord injury. The leg brace and crutches that she used to walk often made her late to class. And on one of these occasions, she got to her physics class and was trying to maneuver into a seat without drawing attention to herself. But as I was scooting sideways between the first and second rows, my backpack shifted and I began to free fall backwards. Meanwhile, my legs shot straight up in the air so that the entire class was framed between my knees as they, in unison, gasped, some of them reaching their hands out as if they might be able to catch me, all of them with a look of absolute horror. The instructor actually had to come over and help lift my legs over the back of the seat and swing me around to the front. All the while, I just looked at him and begged, please, just go on teaching. The rest of the day was a blur. I couldn't look anyone in the eye. I just kept thinking that for the next four years, I would meet people and never know if they might have been in that class. So that night, I decided to hide in the library. I found one of those study carols where you have two desks that are facing each other, but there's this high wooden partition in between them. And I just kept my head down, reliving those God awful 50 minutes of class where I sat there with a wall of pity to my back. But at some point I looked up to see a hand slide two warm chocolate chip cookies across the desk toward me. So I leaned to my far right to see if maybe there was someone on the other side of the partition. And there was, was another student. And he leaned out to meet my gaze and just shrugged and said, I was in physics class today. That was it. And then I ate those warm chocolate chip cookies. It made me realize that even in those moments of being brought incredibly low, there are people who just want you to take that next step forward. To my unsung hero, I don't remember your face, 
I didn't think to ask your name, but I have never forgotten your kindness. That was Julie Ort of Highlands Ranch, Colorado. She still walks with canes and a leg brace, but she also enjoys biking and cross-country skiing now. You can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. And to share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Clear tonight down around 42. Tomorrow's sunshine returns. Breezy, a little bit milder, up around 60 for a high. Same for midweek. Wednesday should be sunny again. A few clouds. Highs around 60 once again. 54 degrees now in Boston at 630. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Stage Company with the Colored Museum. Directed by Pascal Florestal, redefining what it means to be black in America. Starts May 20th theumbrellastage.org, and Mass Cultural Council, committed to supporting a diverse, inclusive, and an anti-racist cultural sector in the Commonwealth. Through their racial equity plan and grant-making, Mass Cultural Council is working to better serve artists and organizations. Learn about their grants and services and the power of culture at massculturalcouncil.org.